0: Unexpected Jesus. Uh, this is a, a sermon series that we started about two months ago. Uh, the genesis of it came from a song that I heard uh, that, was, uh, uh, that was talking about that is called uh, Shadow Step. And as I looked at the words, there was a phrasing in the song that really grabbed a hold of me. And it talked about, fix your eyes on the unexpected. And he kept talking about fixing your high, fixing your heart, fixing your eyes on the unexpected. And it says, in the wonder of your shadow step, so take another step. Fix your eyes on the unexpected. And then he says, in the wonder of your shadow step, as I'm, I'm, I'm watching Jesus go, and I'm following in his shadow, and then I look to him and I'll say, take another step. And then I want to follow you. And it, it got us to begin thinking about all the unexpected things that happened with Jesus and unexpected conversations and other things. And so we come to today to talk about an unexpected revelation and a revelation that happened to two of his followers there uh, on the Sunday of the resurrection. Well, when I thought about unexpected revelation, my mind began to race. And I said, okay, let me think real quick. What's the first thing that comes to my mind when it's unexpected revelation? And the first thing that came to my mind was Star Wars. Yes, Star Wars. And, and I remember when I watched the first Star Wars, which I cannot figure out today if that's the fourth one or the third one or whatever, but it was when the very first one came out. And then after you finished with that one, then there was a second. It was when the Empire Strikes Back. Well, the very first Star Wars were introduced to Luke Skywalker and then Darth Vader, and you kept wondering when they were going to have this battle, and sure enough, at the end of, of The Empire Strikes Back, they have this battle, they got this big lightsaber battle going on, and so as they're fighting each other, and as they're fighting each other, uh, and they're just pummeling each other, and all of a sudden, Luke looks like he's he's kind of losing the fight over here, and and then Darth Vader says to him, he says, "Did Obi Wan ever tell you what happened to your father?" And uh, he said. Well, he told me enough, and he told me that you killed him. And then Darth Vader says, no, I am your father. (gasps) Oh, and when we heard that in the theater, it's like it took the air out of the theater. Everybody gasped. I said, Darth Vader is Luke Skywalker's father? We couldn't believe that. But once that revelation was made, and it was an unexpected revelation, it changed Luke. It had to change the whole trajectory of his life. Because you see, his purpose was to be able to take down this arch-villain, Darth Vader. Now all of a sudden, it changed to where his goal in life was to be able to take his dad and try to reclaim him and bring him from the dark side. So it was a whole change of his life. Unexpected revelations have a way of doing that for us, to where we're heading down a path that is taking us one way, and then all of a sudden, some unexpected revelation comes about, and it changes the entire trajectory of our life. This is what happens in the encounter that we're looking at, found in Luke chapter 24. And in Luke chapter 24, you pick up, you pick up this account of the fact that Jesus of Nazareth was arrested on a Thursday night, and went through some hasty trial, was beaten, and then was taken and was crucified. And for six hours, he was there on the cross, extended between heaven and earth. And after six hours, they took a spear and thrust it in his side, and it showed that he had already died. And so they took his body down that afternoon, and and they wrapped his body up, and they placed it into a tomb, and then they put a stone over in front of it, and then had some soldiers to guard it just so that no one would steal the body. And so this Jesus of Nazareth, this teacher who for the last three and a half years has enthralled crowds, all of a sudden was dead and was in a tomb. And then that Sunday morning, some women came early because they wanted to anoint the body and they're trying to figure out how do they move the stone. And when they get there, all of a sudden the stone's moved and they look in there and Jesus is not there. And there's an angel appears to them and said, he's alive, He's risen. And so that kind of blew them away. And then all of a sudden they come back and they tell the disciples and Peter and John, they run to the tomb. And when they run there, sure enough, it's empty. And they're wondering, what, what has happened? I mean, I know he was here. Now he's gone. They say he's alive. Is he alive or did somebody steal the body? We just don't know. And so there was confusion reigning throughout Jerusalem. And you pick up an encounter. In chapter 24 of Luke, verse 13, of two followers who are walking from a city of Jerusalem, walking to a village of Emmaus, about a seven-mile journey. And in the midst of that journey, Jesus kind of joins them on that journey. But they don't know who he is. And what he does is he joins in their conversation. And so I want you to follow with me. We look in how this conversation goes. And it starts in verse 13. Verse 13. And he says, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. And some commentators have taken that of saying that Jesus, in essence, was kind of walking behind them. He picked up the pace to draw near to them and to walk with them. And he says, Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Now, some of those who were with us went to the tomb, and we found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And so they're in this confusion. There's a confusion. And the reason there's a confusion is because they have an incomplete understanding of who Jesus is. And so really the first point of this message that that sets the table for everything we'll talk about is they had an incomplete understanding of Jesus' person and purpose. There was an incomplete understanding of Jesus' person and purpose, his person. If you look on verses 19 and 20, they were describing to this visitor who was Jesus himself of who this Jesus of Nazareth was. They said he was a prophet. He was mighty in deeds. He was mighty in words. And God's power was expressed in his life. Everything they said there. You say, oh, that's good. Powerful man. Prophet of God. Mighty in deeds and works. But then they said he died. And that's all they had as a person. They didn't say he claimed to be the son of God. They didn't go any further than that. That's all they thought he was. He was just a good man. And he was a good man who just died. So they, their understanding was, was off as to who he was as a person, but then they had an incomplete understanding of what his purpose was. They said in there, and, and that his purpose, they said, we thought that he was coming to redeem Israel. And what they mean by that is we thought he was going to be the political ruler. We've been under the, the, uh, uh, the boot of Rome for all these years. We thought for sure this Jesus was going to come and he was going to free us from all of this. And but he died, and so we thought he was the person who was this godly prophet, this political ruler, and we thought for sure he came to redeem us, but now all we've got is he's dead, and so this understanding of Jesus, this incomplete understanding of Jesus was causing all kind of problems in their life, but we have some of those same tendencies ourselves to our incomplete understanding of Jesus, and it'd be interesting to know if I've if just asked you to tell me, when you try to say who God is or who Jesus is, what is your concept? And, and in all of my years of intersecting my life with other people's lives, you can kind of narrow it down. For some people, they think he's like a genie. And he's like a genie in a bottle. And if I'll just say the right things and rub the bottle, all of a sudden he'll give me whatever I want. I can find a couple of verses of Scripture, uh, take them out of context, and pray them, and God's going to give me everything I want. Some see him as an ATM machine. If I need cash, all I got to do is say the right prayer at the right sign, push the right buttons, and all of a sudden, the cash will come. For some, they see him as the grandfather that's walking around with a 409 all-purpose cleaner cleaning up every mess, and that what he does is that whenever a child makes a mess or so, he sprays it, cleans it up, just pats them on the head and say, that's okay. Do better next time. I'll just watch after you, and there's no consequences to anything that happens in your life. For some, they think he's match.com. If I can just get with Jesus, he'll find me the the right person for me to marry. and, And that's really who God is. And we get these incomplete concepts and understandings of who Jesus is. But what happens when the money doesn't come and the lifestyle has consequences and Mr. Right doesn't show up? Then all of a sudden, we're asking ourselves a lot of questions. And you see, that's where the impact comes, because the impact of an incomplete understanding of Jesus, if I could just put it in an easy phrase, it is you get stuck. You get stuck. And that's what it is with these men. I read this passage many times in my life, and I kept going over and over it this week, and verse 17 jumped out at me. Because on verse 17, it says that they were walking with Jesus and they're walking and they're talking. They're walking and they're talking. And then Jesus says, Hey, tell me what all this stuff is about. And then they stood still, looking sad. They stood still, looking sad. They stopped in their tracks and it says they were looking sad. It is as if all the confusion, the sadness, the hurt, everything that was going on in their life just poured over them right there. They were stuck. I mean, they're asking the question, where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? And you see, that describes a lot of what's going on in lives of people sitting right here in the pews today. And for some, it's either today it's happening in your life, and for really for all of us, we've had those times when this has happened. And to where there are these disappointments in life and this uh, this concept of I thought exactly who God was, I thought who he was, what his purpose was, and I've kind of gotten away from that understanding. And when I've gotten away from that understanding, or it's incomplete, I find myself just stuck. And and I don't know what to do. And I thought it was interesting that in to answer this question, they didn't keep watching, walking, they just stopped and they stood still. And he says, and they look sad. And we just get stuck. We get stuck in our griefs. We get stuck in our addictions. We get stuck in our life situations. And the way he describes it here, if we could just use different pieces, uh, pieces of, of the body, the first thing that you would see is they had closed eyes. Now, I know in verse 16 he says that their eyes were kept from recognizing him, and we'll talk about that as to why they didn't recognize who Jesus was. But they had more problems than that. Their eyes were closed to the mercy and the love and the power of God. They couldn't see beyond their own fears and beyond their own misconceptions. Their limited view of who Jesus was and his purpose and his power prevented them from seeing a way out, from seeing a way to get unstuck because they just couldn't see it. Because you see, the person that they thought Jesus was was less than he was and the purpose for why he came was off-center. And so their eyes were closed to all that he could do. They had dull hearts, in verse 25, Jesus said, when he first spoke to me, after they told their story, he says, Oh, foolish ones, and you are slow of heart to believe. Slow of heart, that word also means a dullness. There's an inability for them to comprehend, and they're slow to act. And so, this incorrect understanding of Jesus then makes it dull in your own heart and it makes it hard for you to take scripture and apply it to how you handle persecution, how you handle temptation, uh, how you handle suffering, how you handle lifestyle choices, all of these things. It's just a dullness of heart. And so for them being stuck, their eyes are closed, their hearts are dull, but then they've just got hopeless lives I mean, when they stood still, they looked at him and and they're looking sad. And it was just a sadness there. And in verse 21, when you look, they said, We had hoped. This was the hope they had. We had hoped that he would rescue us. We had hoped that he would give us salvation from the Romans. But he died. All our hopes are gone, they're in despair. They are at a place when all of their expectations were dashed. All of their hopes were disappointed. All of their hope died when this man, Jesus, died on the cross. And now the tragedy is compounded by word that the tomb is empty. And so in their thought, someone has stolen the body. Now, I just thought about this, that today, as Christians, when we ever come up to another Christian, we say, hey, the tomb is empty. We go, praise the Lord, Christ is risen. Those are good words, but not back there, not at that particular time. Because on that day, when he heard the tomb was empty, all he could think was, good gracious, somebody stole the body. I mean, it just keeps getting worse. Not only the fact that he died, but now somebody came in and they stole the body. They're just piling one injustice on another. This is just crazy. How can my day get any worse? But I tell you, whenever we look at this, it's a perfect reminder that the gospel without the resurrection is not good news. Because without the resurrection, it means that you're still lost in your sins. It means that you're still in bondage to sin. It means there is no hope. And that when you die in this world, surrounded and encompassed by your sins, that you will never be able to get into eternity and spend eternity with God, a perfect God in heaven. Because your sins have separated you from God. It's hopeless. But the resurrection is true. And when the tomb was empty, it's because Jesus was alive and that God had raised him from the dead. And when God raised him from the dead, all of a sudden Jesus comes out. And in essence, he looks to sin and he says, I've overcome you. He looks to the power of sin and says, I've overcome you. He looks at the presence of sin and says, I can get you to where there is no sin. Spend eternity with my father. And then he looked at death and he overcame death. And by any time we receive him as our Savior and our Lord and say, I want to accept you, he gives us this incredible gift of grace, of salvation, this grace gift of salvation. And when he gives us that, then we can step into eternity with God when we leave this earth. And so that's the good news. That's why the resurrection is so important. And that's why the good news is good news is because Jesus is alive. And he's conquered sin and he's conquered death. But for these two men, they didn't know that. All they knew, a good man, who they thought could be a good political ruler, just died. And they're hopeless, and they are stuck. And the last word is "stationary feet." Stationary feet. Verse seventeen. They just standing still. And I think they're asking themselves, "Where do you go from here?" You put all your hopes in this Jesus of Nazareth. He's dead. Your hope for freedom's gone. You're stuck. And life stinks. Well, aren't you glad you came today? All right? <laughs> this, is, this is what they're thinking. This is, this is their life. This is what these two men are going through right now. And what they go, are going through here in this encounter that we have in Scripture is what some of you are going through right now. You could come right down here and stand here and say, let me tell you my story. I am stuck. And life stinks. And I have no idea what next step I'm supposed to take. Well, that's where your next point comes in, and that is the unexpected revelation of Jesus. Here comes the good news of it, the unexpected revelation of Jesus. In verses 25, Jesus looks at them, and he said to them, oh, foolish ones. That's a great way to start that conversation, isn't it? Uh, If you put it in today's language, it would be, you guys are clueless. Okay, hey, I love you, but I just want to tell you you're clueless, and I'm going to give you some information here. He says, you are slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, let me give you a definition of an, uh, of an unexpected revelation. And it's not a good definition because it has the word et cetera in there. And I think every definition should be pretty tight but you're going to understand why. Unexpected revelation is this. God discloses something new about himself in his love, his mercy, his grace, his forgiveness, his comfort, his strength. Add to it. Take all the attributes of God and you just place them in there. This is the unexpected revelation. What an unexpected revelation is, this is when God himself discloses to you something about himself that was beyond what you ever knew. He discloses something about his love that you did not know. He discloses something about his mercy that you did not know. He discloses something about his grace that you did not know. He discloses something about his comfort that you had no idea how you could experience that. And all of a sudden, there's this unexpected revelation that comes. And when that comes, it like changes everything. Now, how does God do this? He does this through two ways. Number one, he does it through Scripture. He does it through Scripture. It says in here in verse 27 that Jesus talked to them, and he took them from Moses through the prophets. In essence, we would say he took the Old Testament. And he took the Old Testament, and they had a seven-mile journey that they were walking. That means he had a lot of time, and he had a lot of material. Old Testament's a big book, a big section there. And so he starts going through the Old Testament. And he's walking through the Old Testament, and he's talking to them about this is what Moses said, this is what the prophet said, and this is how everything ties to me. Would that not have been fascinating? In the book of John, it says, in the beginning was the Word. That was Jesus. And and the Word became flesh. That means he came incarnate. And at this time, the incarnate Word was teaching them the written Word of God. Would that not be incredible? The incarnate word sharing and talking about the written word of God to these two followers, and they are mesmerized because for seven miles he begins and just starts taking them through there. Now, I have no idea all that he covered, but I got some idea of some of the things he covered. Is that he would go right to the very first book of the Bible where he said, God created Adam and he created Eve, he put them in the garden, and he says, You got freedom to do anything you want to except for one tree, and this one tree. Don't take part of it. Don't eat that one tree and everything's going to be fine. Serpent came up and tempted Eve to eat of that one tree. She ate of it. She gave it to Adam. He ate. All of a sudden it says sin entered the world. And once sin entered the world, it began to be the separation from God. But God put a plan in place. And in Genesis 3.15, he said in his plan that the seed of a woman will give birth to one who will come and the serpent will bruise his heel but he will crush the serpent's head. Letting them know in the very first book of the Bible that one's going to come, he's going to crush Satan, he's going to crush death, going to crush sin. And so he he takes him through that, and then all of a sudden he probably takes him through Exodus and talks about the Passover lamb, that when they had the, had the Exodus and they had to get the spotless lamb, and they had the spotless lamb, and they sacrificed that lamb and put the blood over the doorpost so that when the death angel came, it would pass over, showing right there that that sacrifice, that perfect sacrifice, that it was greater than death. And then he came into Leviticus and began to talk about all the different Levitical laws, and he talked about the blood sacrifices, and there had to be the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sin. Then he hits into Deuteronomy and and talks about how sinners uh, could find forgiveness at the blood-sprinkled altar. And then he talked about the tabernacle and also about the temple and how everything in the tabernacle and the temple, it all pointed to Jesus. And after he finished that, he probably was walking through, talking to him about the book of Psalms. And he says, hey, you remember David over a 1,000 years ago, one of the psalms he wrote, Psalm 22, he described crucifixion. No one knew what crucifixion was back then, but God uh, inspired him to write about it. And one of the verses in that Psalm 22 is the same thing that Jesus quoted from the cross when he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he takes him into Isaiah, and he talks about the suffering servant. And he said, remember Isaiah talking about that there would be that suffering servant, the one that would take the sins of the world on them? When he says, like, uh, all we like sheep have gone astray and and we've gone our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, that God put all the sins upon this suffering servant and that he had to die. And then he probably came over to Jonah because he talked about him in some of the gospels. And he said, What about Jonah? Uh, You remember when that big fish swallowed him? How long was he in the belly of that fish? Three days. And at the end of three days, he was delivered. And he said, So is the Son of Man. He is to be in the ground for three days and then he's delivered. That's the resurrection. And so as they're taking this walk, he is explaining to them how Jesus Christ himself was talked about throughout all of the Old Testament and tying all of these things together. It's amazing. And so what is so good and what I like so much about this story is that when he walked up to them and they said, we're talking about this Jesus of Nazareth, he could have easily said, hey, I am he. Showed them the nail-scarred hands. And they go, oh, yeah, you're Jesus. But you see, he didn't want them to be so connected to an experience. He wanted them to be grounded in the scriptures that pointed to him. He didn't want them just to say, oh, I've got this experience. He says, no, I want it to be deeper. I want it to be grounded. Because these two followers have followed Jesus before. It says he knew the disciples. He knew the women that were at the tomb. These guys had followed him, but yet they never got it. And so what he wanted them to do is not to just have some ecstatic experience. He said, I want you to be grounded in the Scripture. And for those seven miles, he told them everything that they needed to know. And when he did, he changed their understanding of the person. No longer was he just some good man, God worked some powerful things through him, Now, all of a sudden, he was Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Suffering Servant, and His purpose was not just to come so that He could be a political ruler. No, His purpose was to take the sins of the world on Him and to die for our sins, and then provide us a way to get to God and provide us an opportunity to spend everlasting joy in heaven for eternity. That was His purpose. And so all of a sudden, these guys are getting the understanding how often it is that when we read God's Word, He gives us an unexpected revelation. Now, now any of you that are veteran Christians, you know that you can read through this book and you can read familiar passages over and over, and then all of a sudden, it may be the 10th, 12th, 16th time you read it, and all of a sudden, it speaks something differently to your life. It's amazing. It's amazing. But it's because in Hebrews chapter four, verse 12, this is what it says. It says, for the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword. Cutting between the soul and spirit, between joint and marrow, it exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. And that when we read God's word, he can give us some unexpected revelations to where you look at it and go, wow, I didn't know that. And guess what? It came just at the time that I needed that. Unexpected revelations are shown to us through Scripture, but also they're shown to us through situations. If you look at the remainder of the story, in verse 28, it says, so they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us, for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. Now while he when he was at a table with them, he took the bread and he blessed and he broke it and he gave it to them and their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. It's through situations. I mean we had talked all this time, we got all this knowledge, but now all of a sudden we sat down to eat meal and he breaks the bread, and all of a sudden it says their eyes were open and they said, This is Jesus. Different people wonder why. Some say, well, maybe they were thinking about the Passover meal, the breaking of bread. Some think uh, maybe it reminded them of the feeding of the 5,000. Maybe they were there when he he multiplied the the loaves and the fishes. And then some say, well, maybe it was the first time when they looked and they saw his nail-pierced hands. But something happened and their eyes were opened and all of a sudden they knew who he was. It was an unexpected revelation. And it came about because of a situation, I started thinking about that, and it uh, it kind of took me it took me back to 2011, and it took me back to um, uh, December, the end of end of the year. I had um, had a physical, and when I had a physical, I came back that uh, for uh, for your prostate, that some of the readings were a little higher, kind of getting a little danger level. So they said, go get a biopsy, then they'll check it out, and they'll, and they'll get back with you. And, and it was around Christmas time, so it seemed like no one called. So I called on December 29th, and, and I gave them a call, and I, I'm really rarely ever get sick. And so I don't really know a lot of the medical lingo or something. And I called and the lady was giving me the report and she said, well, we got back the test uh, and it was positive. I said, yay, that's good. Uh, Positive is not good for cancer. Is uh, I didn't didn't realize that. I, I was cheering. I was, oh, that's good. That's good. And then she started walking through all the details and what needed to happen. I went, oh, that's not good. She said, no, it's positive that, that you do have cancer. But she was very upbeat and said, we think we can take care of it and caught it early on there and, and, and talk to her a little bit more. But, you know, whenever you're on the phone and someone mentions cancer, you just kind of get into a different zone and start thinking about that. And after I hung up the phone, I did what every other person here in this room will probably do if you ever got a disease, and that is you go to the Internet. Yeah. And, uh, man, that was a huge mistake. Um, you just know that whatever disease you put in, the first 10 things are like by far the worst thing that has ever happened with someone who's had that particular condition. And it was sort of freaking me out on there. And I I just saw my whole life just kind of ending before my eyes. And uh, so what I did was uh, I picked up the phone and called uh, a pastor. His name's Johnny Hunt, pastor at Woodstock Baptist Church. I knew that two years earlier he'd had, uh, prostate cancer surgery. So I called him and, and I had all this fear in my voice because everything I read, is like my, my career as a preacher's over and everybody will stand in front of people and everybody will do this and that. I mean, it was on and on. And I called him and I left a message for him. He quickly returns the call back. And uh, I said, Johnny, so where are you? He says, I'm in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, and I'm walking around. And I'm getting ready to go speak to a thousand teenagers uh, later on tonight. How can I help you? And right there, I was already encouraged. I said, good gracious, he had this surgery two years ago, and he's walking around Gatlinburg. He's getting ready to stand and speak before a 1,000 teenagers on there. So I told him what had gone on and what my report was. And he said, man, I'll be praying for you. Uh, I'll keep up with you on that and, uh, and just strongly encourage me. And so I, I kept a diary to where, or a, a journal, excuse me, a journal, uh, and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and give my man card back. Yeah, it's a journal. <laughs> it's a journal, and um, and so I, I kept it over uh, over what was going on during that time, and um, I, I wrote down here about what I'd said with Johnny and how much that meant to me and how encouraging it was, and uh, so then the very next day I was gonna I was going to go run. And I was going to run 13 miles. And so I went over to uh, Lakeshore. I was running a lot at that time. So, uh, so I went over to the Lakeshore and uh, right at the, um, at the trail, I parked my car. I got out of the car and I started running. I got a half mile down the trail and all of a sudden it hit me. Did I lock my car or not? Have you ever done that or is that just a senior moment for me? I, I, and I always wonder... And you know, a half a mile, um, you can't do your key like this and think you're going to get any kind of beep coming from your car. And so then my mind was racing as I stopped. And I said, now if I, um, uh, I can't keep running because I'll worry about it for the next 12 and a half miles. But then if I got to run back, it means I got to run back a half a mile. Then I come back. It just throws up the whole run. I mean, it just throws everything off. And I look up and here comes Ron Scollin, one of our members. He's finished up his run. I said, Ron, will you do me a favor. I said, can you check my car and describe what it was? I said, and if it's unlocked, can you lock it? He said, oh, yeah, I'll be glad to do that. So I came back and I wrote in my journal, and I said here, I look up and here comes Ron Scollin finishing his run. I stopped him, asked him to check my car and lock it. I thought as I continued my run, Lord, if you care about quieting my mind over whether or not I lock my car, I know you will guide me through cancer. And then the very next day, it was January 1st, and I picked up a new devotion, and I said, let's read January 1st. Well, guess who wrote January first devotion? Johnny Hunt. Johnny was writing about his cancer in Psalm 23. And he says, the Lord literally provided everything I needed for the uncertain path I had to travel. And he said that now he can comfort others going through that same dark valley. And I wrote a comment, and he has already proven that with me. Thank you, Lord for using this timely word. That's what I'm telling you. Unexpected revelations. Sometimes God brings it through Scripture. Sometimes he brings them through situations and even does them together. So to close it out, what's the impact of the unexpected revelation of Jesus? Well, look what it says in 31 through 35. He says, number one, he says, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Their eyes were open. Let me tell you the first thing that happens. When you get this unexpected revelation, you will go from closed eyes to open eyes. You'll understand the person and the purpose of Jesus. You'll see a whole new dimension of His mercy and His love and His power because He has revealed something to you that you would not have seen before. And second of all, they went from dull hearts to burning hearts. They went from this dull heart that was slow to comprehend to burning hearts. Not heartburn, but burning hearts. Look at verse 32. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the Scriptures? Is that not a cool verse or what? As he's talking to us and he's telling us all about the Scriptures, man, my heart was on fire. There was a fire that was being kindled in my heart that had not been there before. And he says, all of a sudden, man, I'm conscious of of what he was doing. And this rekindling will happen oftentimes when we come to the Scriptures. And these Scriptures come alive in our soul and the centrality and reality of Jesus Christ. And they said, this is different. This is new. This unexpected revelation took my heart from being a dull heart to being a heart that was on fire. And then second or third of all, it went from stationary feet to moving feet to tell others about God. They were no longer just standing still being sad. All of a sudden, they got their feet moving to tell other people about God. Look what it says in verse 33. And they rose that same hour and they returned to Jerusalem. Now, the reason that they told Jesus don't go farther is because it's getting nighttime. It's dangerous to travel. They didn't care. They had a word to tell. They had something to share. So guess what? They got up. They returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, "The Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon." And then they told what had happened on the road and how he has known and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. They just couldn't keep this words to themselves. No longer were they stuck in some situation. Now they're out, moving feet, telling other people about God. And then the last thing is they went from hopeless lives to hope-filled lives. They went from hopeless lives to hope-filled lives. Kind of that frost that was in their cold, dull hearts had melted away with the fire of the good news. And no longer were they stuck. No longer was things hopeless. All of a sudden there's hope. Because Jesus is not this limited person I thought he was. He truly is the son of God. His purpose was not just some political thing. He was to redeem all mankind. He was to die, but then he was to raise from the dead, and he did that. And he's alive today. And so with it, all of a sudden, this hopeless life went to hopeful life. They had this correct understanding of God of Jesus. They Once again, they had hope. They had this new outlook on life, and this unexpected revelation made all the difference. Unexpected revelation. Hey, and if I can just tell you, it didn't stop right there, because if you keep reading for your homework assignment from verse 36 on, guess what? They are talking to the disciples. Jesus shows up again twice same day, and he comes, and there's another unexpected revelation. Does it get much better than this day for these guys? It just keeps getting better. Wow. Now, let me just get you to write this statement. Last thing we'll say. Being precedes doing. It's not on the screen. Being precedes doing. What I mean by that is the the first thing that many of us want to do is when we feel we're stuck in life is to pull out a to-do list and say, I can list 20 things to get me unstuck. Now, there probably are some things you need to do, but I'm encouraging that the very first thing you need to do to get unstuck is the being portion of that. That is an intimacy with Jesus Christ. That you get into his word, get into prayer, And then you can begin to get unstuck because it's the being that happens first. And then when that inner transformation takes place, then he guides you into your next steps. These guys were walking with Jesus, and guess what? When they said our hearts were burning within us, it was not because they were telling him so many things. It's because he was telling them so many things. And as he talked to them about the scriptures, there began this inner transformation And then when that revelation came, they knew they needed to do something. And they were back on point. Same thing with us. Have that intimacy of Jesus first. And then take that next step. In that song, Shadow Step, there's a portion of it that says, fix your heart to his. You fix your heart to Jesus. And then, once you fix your heart to Jesus, then it says, You're ready for the unexpected, ready for what you will do next. It starts with your heart. So I fix my heart to Jesus, and then the next line comes back later on in the song, and then it says, Fix my eyes on the unexpected. So if I can fix my heart on him, that gets my being. And then I fix my eyes on him. And then when I fix my eyes on the unexpected, I say, okay, God, things are happening in here. I'm feeling transformed. I'm excited. I'm ready to take that next step. And so what I'm going to do is fix my eyes on the unexpected, looking for wherever it is that you may be sending me. And you know what? I'm at a point to where I'm ready. I'm ready to walk in your shadow. Take another step. And when you take that next step, I will follow you. That's what it is. It's my prayer that this Easter, that you'll take that next step. For some of you, it may be to receive Christ as Savior for the first time. And for others of you, it is I'm just stuck in life. I'm a believer, but things have gone awry with me, and I am ready to take another step to get unstuck. May this Easter be the day that you do that. Let me ask you to bow your heads, close your eyes, just a moment. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the resurrection. And we thank you for it because, Lord, that is what gives us our hope. That is what um, the Christian faith is all about, is that Jesus is alive and that he has provided an opportunity for us to be forgiven and he's provided us an opportunity to come into a right relationship with you. I pray for those here, Lord, that have never met you, that have never committed to you, that today would be a day that they say, I'm ready to take that step because I know where my life is going now is a dead end. I want to be able to have something different. I pray that today your spirit would speak to their heart and they would make that decision. And then, Lord, I pray for others that are followers of yours, but they're stuck. And they're just stuck in life. And they're looking to take that next step. I pray that through what has been shared today or what will take place this week, that there'll be some of those unexpected revelation that you'll send through your scripture, through situations, to let them know how much you love them and you care for them and you want them to continue that progress in life and to know that you are a masterpiece, that they have, you have created them to be a masterpiece for good works. And may they understand that and move forward and take that next step. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.